I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We are picking up verse 8 through 16. And if you have a bulletin, there is an insert that you can use to follow along. And as we look into this text, I, I want to say um, a little bit again what I had said last Sunday, that the art of making the plain things of Scripture plain is what expository preaching is. It's also the making of the difficult things of Scripture plain. And so what a preacher does is he opens the Word of God and, and to the best of his ability, with dependency upon the Holy Spirit, careful study, he explains the words on the page as they meant then and how these words would be applicable today. And so by taking time to, to research the meaning and to give the historical context and the scope of Scripture, what a pastor does is he, he does to his best ability to interpret the Bible. Now, Alistair Begg, some of you listen to him. He is a pastor on the radio at times. He's a pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland. He likes to say that the plain things are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. And so when we come to a scripture that is not plain, we need to remember that they're not the main things. What is a main thing? What is a main thing? Well, the scriptures give us some clue. In fact, even we don't have to turn very far away because in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4 Paul says, For I have delivered to you as of first importance. It's a main thing. What I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so he encapsulates it with, you know, in accordance to the Scriptures, because it is a main thing. It is primary importance. And so, with the art of expository preaching, exposing the words of Scripture to their sense, trying to make the difficult things of Scripture come to understanding, this may cause men who have no disagreement on primary things, the plain things of the gospel, to come to different conclusions regarding the more difficult sayings of the Scripture. Now, if you're thinking, you might ask yourself, well, does this mean that the authority of the Scripture is lost? No, not at all. God's Word is still the primary authority to which I must submit myself and to which you must submit yourself. And so, when you hear something different than maybe what you've heard before, what do you do? Well, you have to evaluate. You have to ask yourself, is this pastor trying his best to evaluate the material before him? Can you follow his arguments? Can you take it back to the Scriptures? And you might not have all the tools that a pastor has, but can you see where he's coming from? And does this interpretation affect a main thing that is the gospel? So you might ask yourself, well, why are you doing this today, Pastor? What, what's going on here? Well, I'm sensitive that 
as being a pastor here for the past seven years that I hold a different interpretation of this text which deals with divorcees than maybe what has been taught in the most recent history. I say a number of years perhaps because I do share an interpretive view of, I believe, a former pastor of this church. Some might remember him, some might not, uh, John McAndrews. And I share, I believe, I've not sat down over coffee with him because he's now with the Lord, but from what I understand, we have a very similar view. And so I, like you, considering the authority of the Word of God, must evaluate a pastor's interpretation. And I think it's helpful for you to understand that I personally respect the work of other pastors who come to different conclusions about this text. In fact, there are some high-profile writing pastors that I have got a lot from that I come to a different conclusion with on this text. And I respect these men. And I also respect the thoughts of my fellow brothers in the ministry who see themselves as I do as men underneath the authority of the Word of God. And so if they're trying their best to honor God with how they look at the Word, I give a lot of respect to that. And I think it's helpful maybe for you to be aware that, um, that I have also carefully considered the breadth of Scripture for over 20 years. Now, I know I don't look that old. Someone... I asked someone how old I looked before the service and said, you look like you're 34. And I said, thank you, because I'm actually 40. But ever since I had been enrolled in Bible college and seminary, it's been my attempt to try to understand and wrap my head around this difficult topic. And, and I hope that God's people will be gracious to me as on matters that are of secondary importance. This is not of first importance. And I, too, am a pastor who is underneath of the authority of the Word of God, trying to be honest with the Word as best I can. And so you may have a different conclusion than I do. And I want you to know that I respect that conclusion. Because the matter of divorce and a possibility of remarriage is not a main thing. And I also hope that in my respect for you, you will also in turn respect me as well and give me grace in return. And I think that learning how to give grace to one another in difficult things, maybe things that we don't agree on, particularly secondary matters, is a mark of genuine spirituality. Because what it does is it, it elevates the humility and the love and the grace of God. We don't have the mind of God in all things, but if we honestly pursue the Word of God, His Holy Spirit will help us to understand it to the best of our ability in His gracious giving. Let me pray before we get into this text. Our Heavenly Father, I just ask for ears to hear and a heart to communicate. Pray that you help me to be faithful with what you've um, led me to conclude, but also to be gracious to consider the, the alternate views that may be on this text. And I pray for uh, willingness of mind. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we haven't read the text yet, so we should read the text, because that's what the governing thing is that we're going to consider here. In verse 8 through 16 is where I'm picking up. And in verse 8, we read, 
And to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, and he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In this text the governing big idea is actually found in the next couple of verses. (laughs) Paul has this habit of talking about this and then referring back to what he had just said. So let me read verse 17 and 18 for you. In verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And so I believe that according to to Paul's approach of talking about this, that he's referring back and he's he's talking about these this this set of directions that he has given the church to to each person to evaluate in their own heart where they have entered into the kingdom of God and evaluate the relational status that they're in and determine whether or not God has allowed this for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so the big idea that I believe that Paul is giving in verses 8 through 16 hinges on this this idea found in verses 17 and 18. And it's this, to consider how you might advance the kingdom of God in whatever marital status that you might have. So I see in this text Paul offering counsel for four different relational situations under divine inspiration. And so these four are, in short, he's talking to single believers, then he talks to married believers, and then he talks to married believers, excuse me, a married person who has an unbelieving spouse who's content to stay. And then he's also talking to a a believer who has an an unbelieving spouse spouse who is discontent and giving direction. So Paul is writing to a church full of people who did not grow up knowing and valuing the permanence of marriage. I think we, I hope by this point in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've understood that this is a really messed up church. There's a lot of ignorance, there's a lot of misunderstanding about a lot of things. But that's to be expected. 
There were no mature Christians as soon as they walked in and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So many were affected by the cultural and legal conditions of their day, and Paul is giving instruction now to them so they might understand, well, how do we live now as Christians in these, these relational statuses that we currently have? And so it's important, I think, and helpful for us to understand a little bit about the Roman law and the customs of the day. There were actually, in Paul's day, four types of marriages that were practiced. Uh, Contemburnium was a Latin word. It's, uh, of course, it's a Roman culture, so they had a, a, a term to describe a, a, a marital relationship that was, it was called a tent companionship. That's literally what that word means. Tent companionship. And so if you need to understand that in that culture, one-third of the population were slaves. And so this, set, this, this uh, relationship was set up so that if an owner's slave wanted to be married, the owner could give allowance for that only as long as the master permitted. So in other words, they could live together in a tent companionship and then the master could turn around and say, I'm going to take this slave wife of yours and then sell her. And there was nothing that they could do about it. Now, if it was a good slave master, they would be considerate of, of human, of, of people. There would definitely be some consideration there. But that's one type of marriage practice that was in play as Paul is writing here. The second is usus. And this was a type of common law marriage that gave recognition and so a little bit of legal rights to, to uh, couples if they were living together for at least one year. Now, we might be familiar with common law in our world here in America, um, but in the state of Pennsylvania in 2013 discontinued the observance of common law relationships. So there are some states that still do this practice, but it was a practice that was common in Paul's day. A third, which is a little bit even more, this is degrading towards women, but it was called coemptio in magnum, or manum, excuse me. And that marriage consisted of the sale of one's daughter to a prospective husband. So there's a wide view here of what marriage entails in the, in the society in which they lived. And the last arrangement is much more noble. It's called conferiatio. And this arrangement was based on equals coming together from two sets of families and making an arrangement in public that they now, as a couple, become married. And so there, is, there was a whole ceremony that was adopted and used. And um, in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church coming out of the Roman Empire took the ceremony of this. And what we see today in a wedding is leftover remnants of that ancient practice. In fact, there was the giving of the bride. There was an exchanging of vows and a wearing of a veil. There was a giving of a ring and placing it on the ring finger even. And the bridal bouquet was in use. And there was also a wedding cake. 
So there's certainly a variety of, of relationships, and the, the noblest one was the one that was the ideal. It was the most considered appropriate. Now, in the Roman Empire, divorce was very common, even by those who were married under the noble conferiatio arrangement. You know, people have been people for as long as there has been people. And there was plenty of people trying to live for themselves and create carnage within marriage relationships. People have been determined to live their lives regardless of what a vow has been stated. And clearly, clearly there is difficulties in the Roman Empire. Now, the early church had members who lived together and were still living together. And under all of these forms of relationships, and there were multiple divorces that were involved in those churches. Some believers were starting even to elevate celibacy as somehow it's now a higher spiritual gift, and we saw that last Sunday. And they were suggesting that intimacy in marriage was, you know, now unspiritual. And as you think about the church in Corinth, it was a glorious mess. I say it's a glorious mess because this ought to be the case when the church is evangelizing the lost. We cannot expect well-groomed sheep entering this building. They need shepherding. They need to be welcomed. They need to be cared for. They need to be put on the correct, in the correct direction. And so the church must carefully evaluate situations as they present themselves against the Word of God and with careful pastoral counsel. And I believe that Paul here is not primarily seeking to answer all the questions that we might have regarding divorce and the possibility of a remarriage, but I do believe that you can find some conclusions in, in the text if you follow his argumentation all the way through. But the direct question that he is trying to address, I believe, is this. When we come to Christ, what do we do with where we are? And I believe Paul deals with, with some marital statuses in these paragraphs that unfold. And so the overriding drive of answer, I believe, is that you ought to consider how you might advance the kingdom of God in whatever marital status you have, that you might have. And so in verses 8 through 9, Paul addresses single believers. Verses 8 through 9. And he says, And to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He addresses single believers. You have the unmarried and the widows, two categories of a kind of single person mentioned here. But there is a third type of single believer, and that's found in verse 23. We have to look in the immediate context to find it. In verse 23, we have a third category in which is called, some translations now, the betrothed. Or, literally, the word is virgin. Parthenoi 
is the word. You can hear the word Parthenos, uh, the Parthenon, the auditorium dedicated to the Virgin is the, the idea there. But here, it, in verse 23, it's referring to singles who have never been married. Widow, if you look back at verse um, 8, you see widow. Verse 8, it says widow, and a widow is a single person whose spouse has died. So who is he referring to when he talks about the married and the widows, the unmarried and the widows? Who is he talking about there? What is that category? Now the word there, unmarried, comes from the Greek and it means, it's literally agamas, monogamous, you might hear. But the letter A negates that. So it's talking about someone who is not married or no longer married. So how do we understand what this, this term means? What does, it, what does it mean? Well, actually, this word unmarried is used four times in the Scripture. And so how do we understand what it means? Well, there are two ways you can do this. You can look at all the writings that you can find in the Greek world and look at how that word was used in all these contexts. But you also do that with the Bible. That when the word is used in the scriptures in a close proximity, you have an opportunity to understand what it means by looking at the immediate context. Hang with me here. This is, this is important for your understanding, and we're going to pick up the pace here in a moment. And so, it's important for us to understand that the word agamos is a word that is used outside the Bible, and it's a broad word that, depending on its context, might refer to virgins, widows, but it also, in context, refers to people who have been married and are no longer now due to divorce. And that being the case... We ought to also consider how Paul uses it in this text. And I believe that we can get a good understanding of what Paul is referring to by looking at this context of who he's referring to as an unmarried. In verse 32, let's look over there with me, if you would, please. In verse 32, we see this word come up again. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. And here he's quite simply referring to the single person because he doesn't distinguish it against other kinds of singleness. But you drop down to verse 34, he uses it again but distinguishes. In verse 34 he says, And the unmarried or the betrothed woman or the virgin, is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. And so the unmarried there is differentiated from the virgin. Okay? And he's doing so to give distinction that there's two different groups and whoever these unmarried people, they're not virgins. Now you take that back and you chase this a little bit further. You go back to verse 8. And in verse 8, he says, Now to the unmarried and the widows. Not talking to the virgins now. He's talking to the widows. And so he's distinguished to, and he's also 
distinguished a third group that he's referring to here. These unmarried are not virgin, they're not widows, they're people who have had a former marriage. And so I believe that Paul here has in mind in verses 8 through 9 very distinct groups of people. And so as you read here, the clearest indication that he's referring to someone who has had a former marriage is found in the following paragraph. In verses 10 through 11, he says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And so, as I look at this, I see Paul addressing single people in three ways in this whole chapter. And in particular, because he's going to talk to those who have a current marriage, he's also referring to those who don't have a current marriage because of circumstances. And so, how you might advance the kingdom of God in whatever marital status you might have is, is pretty, pretty important to consider for someone who has, who has either lost their spouse due to death or by circumstances are no longer married. And so I think what's important for us to understand that, that, that Paul is addressing people to think first and foremost not about their marital status but about the kingdom of God. It might not be wise for you in these given states to do a remarriage. But what is clear is that the kingdom of God is primary. I think it's helpful for us to realize that Paul had been married previously we believe. The scriptures are relatively silent for the most part about his marital, marital situation. But as you read the book of Acts, you don't see Paul and Paula traveling together. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So I believe that Paul was single. And as a former member of the, of the Pharisees and member of the Jewish council, it was expected for Paul to ha be a married man with, with that responsibility to give input into the kingdom, into, in, into the Israel's government. But Paul here, he, he doesn't identify himself with the virgin group. If you look carefully in how he says, you know, that they, it would be good for you to remain as I am, he doesn't identify with the virgin group. And so this has led many people to believe that, that Paul had been married and was either a widower or he was a divorcee. And so that's logical consideration. It's not thus saith the Lord, it's consideration, interpretation. So please don't throw stones at me. But the point is that those who are single when converted to Christ need to give serious consideration to what the Lord would have them do. And this is no, you know, if there's no serious desire for, for marriage, then perhaps the gift of celibacy is yours so that you might advance the kingdom of God like Paul. Think about him and how much he did for Christ. We're here because of Paul. 
There may be generations down the road because you decided in your heart that, that you wanted to serve God more intentionally and with freedom. And so I think it's important for us to recognize what Paul is primarily saying. And if a single believer doesn't have self-control, then that person should seek to remember, remarry or to marry, excuse me, to, let me restate that. That person should seek to marry. But Paul is pretty clear here. If they can't contain, then let them marry. Don't stand in the way. Let them make the decision. But once the decision is made, we ought to be supportive. And so that's the first group that he's talking to. I think we can move a little bit quicker here now. It's a lot to take in. But in verse 10 through 11, he talks to married believers who are married to believers. Uh, There's no distinction in marriage for this group. Like the next two groups, he's talking to people who have a mixed marriage. And so I take verses 10 through 11 as being, he's referring to believing couple. And of course, there is application for the unbelieving as well in this admonition. I wouldn't want us to not think that that's the case. Because God does care for marriage and he wants it to be honored and the permanence of marriage to be, to be paramount in our thinking. And so he's talking to the married, the married and, and, and in Paul's day, this is covering a pretty wide swath of different kinds of relationships. And so in verse 10, he turns his attention to those married people and he summarizes, I believe, what Christ taught in Matthew 19. In verse 10, and to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And so Paul's not saying, you know, what I give is anywhere near less valuable. This is just what Christ has talked about. That's what he was talking about when he was on the earth. This is what he has said. And so he's just pointing out here. And thinking of Matthew 19, we might get really hung up on Matthew 19, if you know Matthew 19. Because there is an exception clause in there for cases in which there is adultery. But Jesus Christ himself was talking primarily about the permanent pattern of marriage. And he's saying, you know, what's, what's most important is that you stay faithful to your spouse that God has given to you. And Paul here is not talking about exceptions either. He's talking about the normal, permanent nature of marriage. Because divorce is contrary to God's plan for marriage. And so Paul is clear here that this is the normative expectation to stay together as husband and wife. Now as you read these words in verse um, 10... In 19, you might see the word separate from a husband, or the King James has the word depart, and uh, my translation says divorce, or, and the King James says put away. And, and both of these words are important, but they're right there in the context talking about the same thing, the context of a separation that leads to divorce. That's the end result, and that's not what God wants. And so... Paul here is, is not talking about the exception clause. He's specifically talking about other reasons like incompatibility and irreconciliation of differences and drifting and we're just not compatible anymore. And 
Paul is saying, look, Christ gave direction in this, and Christ got his direction from the very beginning. When God put people together, let not man tear and sunder. There is a permanence that's advocated here. And so if a professing Christian does divorce another Christian, they're to remain unmarried or to be reconciled. Paul gives this direction. Because that's the implication. Now, in verses 12 to 16, he says, To the rest, I say not I, but the Lord. Does this mean that his words are less inspired? No. Christ did not speak to the situation. So now Paul, as an apostle of Christ, is giving direction under inspiration. And it's not less important. And so now he talks to those who are married and in mixed marriages, and they're wondering, what do we do? We've got an unbelieving spouse. I've come to know the Lord. They don't care anything about Christ, and, and what should I do? And I hear people in my church saying, you know, we should be celibate and just, you know, not be equally yoked with an unbeliever, and, and I'm going to, you know, somehow now defile my body if I join and make union with an unbeliever. What, what, what do I do? And so Paul gives direction here, pastoral counsel. So what does a person do if they're married to an unbeliever? Paul teaches us here that if our spouse agrees to stay with us, then we ought to see this as an opportunity for the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom. How do I see this? Well, he says in verse 12, To the rest I say, and I not... And I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, that she, and she contends to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he contends to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. That holy, that is an idea of being set apart And I believe that Paul is saying they're set apart for the potential of salvation. There is great opportunity and wives with children as well. The influence of Christ in the home is so important. Don't try to destroy that. Paul is considering here, I believe, that, you know, how can you advance the kingdom of God here? And then we come to the last category here of a person, verses 15 to 16. Someone who is married to an unbeliever who is discontent. So what if you do if your spouse wants to leave the marriage? If the unbelieving spouse separates, I believe Paul says, let it be so. You're not under enslavement. You're not under the bondage. You're not in the marriage bond is the idea. When you're married, you're bound. But if the other person has left, then you are no longer bound. And God, I do believe, allows here a reluctant divorce in the case of desertion by an unbelieving husband and wife who does so because of spiritual reasons. They don't want Christ. They want nothing to do with your new cult following And so Paul says here in verse 15 that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They're not under bondage. God has called you to peace. 
Now, I believe my interpretation of verse 15 is that Paul is, in a sense, citing something along the lines of Romans 12, 18, which is that as so far as lies within you, be at peace with all men. You can do all you can to be at peace, but they will not be content. They're discontent. They don't want anything to do with you, and so they, they ask you to leave. They ask to leave. I believe that this is not necessarily permission. I believe that this is a command. That if they have asked, and, you've, and they're not, that you have to let them go. I don't believe this is the attitude of, I won't sign that thing and you're not making me. I believe that what Paul is saying here is that you don't know in the end whether or not you will save your spouse. And if your, parent, if your partner stays in the marriage unwillingly, the likelihood of you bringing him to Christ is not assured. And I believe that what Paul is saying there is that you have to give it true consideration that perhaps God can do a work of saving them instead of yourself. As much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. And so, as we look at the whole picture here, I recognize that my interpretation of this text will not necessarily square with everyone in this room. And it won't necessarily square with some godly men that I highly respect. I do respect other conclusions. But I also believe that because divorce and the possibility of remarriage, it's because it's not the main thing, I hope that I will be given the same degree of grace as I would hope to give to others. Because God has called us to peace. And so far as it lies within you, let's be at peace with all men. And my desire to teach the Word of God is as one underneath of authority. And we have a world that's so severely hurt by sin. Severely hurting as we seek to minister to people coming to us, we've got to give recognition to the Word of God as our only authority and consider how we might minister peace to people who have come to Christ out of horrific situations. Difficult, meritable positions. There is real hope in this text. Because the God who calls us into relationship with himself has reconciled us who are enemies and provides with us the Holy Spirit to help reconcile our hearts to Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who can do a work of transfer from a person, from, from a, a servant of Satan into the Son of God. I want, to, I want to conclude on a positive note by personal illustration. My grandmother was married to an unbeliever when she came to Christ. She had made a profession when she was a teenager, but the life wasn't there. And she married an unbeliever and then really came to Christ. 
and was born again. My grandfather was content to live with her, and I thank God for that. Praise God, because in his willingness to stay with my grandmother, when he was 30 years old, he became a believer in Christ. And that changed our family dramatically. My father and his two siblings turned to Christ. And, and I'm here as a pastor. And my children have opportunity to hear the gospel. I thank God for, for people who don't consider their marital calling, their marital status first, but they consider the calling of the king of kings first. That's what's most important. And the advancement of his kingdom is more critical than the transitionary relationships that we find in this world. Yes, we love those with whom we are married and those with whom we have had past relation. But ultimately, eternity is where we're all going. And we're going to sit around the king of kings throne and worship at his feet. We're going to worship with the myriads upon myriads of nations around the throne. See, the kingdom of God is so much greater. There is so much opportunity for sharing the gospel. And give consideration with where you are that maybe God would allow you to bring others to Christ. How can you advance the kingdom of God in whatever marital status that you find yourself in? Let's pray. I am conscious that we're about to take communion. I'm going to ask the elders if they would prepare themselves for the tables, I pray. Our Heavenly Father, prepare us from your word. Prepare us with your Holy Spirit. As we observe this part of our worship service, may we we recognize that this is of first importance. The images here before us are just images, but they speak to the greatest event in all of history and eternity in which the second person of the Godhead became man. He became flesh and he lived with us a perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. We deserve to be put on that tree. But because of his great love wherewith he loved us, he, he died for us. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again for our, our joy, our hope, our righteousness. So that we might walk in newness of life. And so as we worship around this table, may we not get caught up in the, the elements, but that we'd look past them and through them and see Christ coming in all of his glory one day for us, coming in the clouds to redeem his own. And Lord, would we look in our hearts to see if whether or not we are one of his redeemed. And Lord, I pray that perhaps even redemption might occur in someone's heart here this morning as they contemplate the glories of the cross and resurrection for us. And so, Father, as we take time now to meditate and pray, I pray that you would, you would fill us with the awareness of the great sacrifice that you shed for us. In your name we pray. Amen.